but what I started to realize was whenever I had discussions with people who weren't making games and I said that I was making games, they would just light up. They were like, oh my god. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. How do you solve big problems? On today's show, we'll chat with Marguerite Dibble, CEO of Game Theory, who has figured out how to change behavior using games. Welcome. This is Sam Roach Gerber and David Bradbury, recording from Fairpoint Tech Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Hi, Marguerite. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, guys. Welcome. Yeah, thanks. Long commute for you today. Oh, from... super long. Yeah, no, it's really not that bad. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, growing up in Vermont, everything's a half an hour commute. So going into work every day, spending a half an hour in the car, that's just normal. So what's a half hour from Landgrove, Vermont? Okay, half an hour from Landgrove, Vermont are any movie theaters that we want to go to. Uh, so if you want to go to the movies, Gas you stations, get in the car. Maybe? Gas stations, we might have a gas station 10 minutes away. Half an hour away is the 7-Eleven. So when we were in high school, if we ever wanted anything past 5 p.m. at night, then we had to drive half an hour to the 7-Eleven to get chips or what have you. So Awesome. Yeah. awesome. So that's where your uh, creativity really stemmed from then. Definitely, know? definitely. But, I mean, that really is real, though. Like, when you grow up in rural Vermont, you really got to make your own fun like we used to buy stuffed animals and fill them up with fireworks and launch them over ski trails. We used to steal cafeteria trays and sneak past the uh, snow machines that were grooming the trails on Stratton to sled down on them from the whole mountain. So you really have to get in this habit of inventing your own fun and your own enjoyment because there's not a lot of Typical resources. I mean, you can't just go chill at the mall. You gotta. And now there's probably <laughs> a dial-up web service there, though. So oh yes, yes, we've yeah. leveled up to dial-up. Awesome. <laughs> so, awesome. So, uh, speaking of inventing fun, what a segue! Oh my. Tell us about game theory. Yeah, so Game Theory is a team of game developers. I came out of a game development major at Champlain College. And we started out doing entertainment games, so things for mobile phones and that sort of stuff, and we won some awards and had some successes, but what I started to realize was whenever I had discussions with people who weren't making games, and I said that I was making games, they would just light up. They were like, oh my god, that's the coolest thing ever! Tell me about that! And I was like, all right, and it just really made me realize... There are so many awesome things going on in games, there are so many great benefits, so many philosophical and psychological concepts that can influence so many parts of our lives and those concepts can be of high value for motivation and behavior change in so many different industries so we pivoted the company identity from just making games for fun to making games that are fun that can push for behavioral change and for learning and to meet high sometimes seemingly impossible goals in all these other industries because our sort of approach is If you want to solve a problem, then you have to have people take action. And if you want to have people take action, then you better make what you want them to do something that's enjoyable, fun. So we say natural inclination over demanding interaction, right? Don't make it a demanding experience. Make it something that people will be naturally inclined to do. 
And that's what we focus on at Game Theory. So Game Theory didn't start out to change behavior necessarily. Nope. Nope. Wow. Game Theory started out with um, me in college saying, well, I definitely know I'm going to start a company. I'm majoring in games. We could do that. <laughs> Awesome strategic planning. Amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was Amazing. high level. Yeah. And that was the idea was to sort of just develop a game, throw it up in the app store, or uh, push yeah. it out for, for, for console play. Yeah. So there's, there's this classic indie dream of a sustainable gaming company. And what that looks like is we make a game, we sell the game, we use the money the game made to pay ourselves to make the next game. And we do that over and over again. And this is sort of the classic model. It's a little bit like a Hollywood model or a book writing model, right? It's sort of similar in those veins. And um, that is something that is very random in your ability to achieve it. It's extremely hard to predict what's going to happen on a gaming marketplace because no one really has any idea. So for example, there's this company that makes a game called Clash of Clans, um, which you guys might do play. Anyone play Clash of Clans? No. Kids play? Not yet. Don't I, start. It's I really don't addictive. wish to disclose what <laughs> yeah. I play or don't play. <laughs> so Clash of Clans makes $10 million or so a day uh, in sales. Okay. What? Yep. Yep. So Candy Crush makes similar amounts per day in, in game sales. And the CEO of the company that makes Clash of Clans, which makes $10 million a day, has said, no one can tell you if a game is going to be successful or not. I can't tell you. I have no idea. So if he has no idea because of how random the market is and how unpredictable it is, then you certainly have no idea. So you can make a game and you can put it out there, but you really have no sense of what it's going to result in in terms of capital and in terms of revenue. So you're pretty much just sort of hoping and praying each time that you make just enough to do your next thing. And that was a business model that was challenging for me. <laughs> I want to have a sense of I have some control over the amount of revenue that I can generate with my company. And that's something that I can predict and plan and scale and grow because I take a certain amount of comfort in that crazy as that right, is. Right, right, right. <laughs> Other than waiting for lightning to strike. And uh, so what do yeah. you figure is, is it like one every thousand games you think sort of get to a, a decent profit level or? No, like one in every 10,000. Um, it's really like writing the next great American novel. I'm pretty sure that the statistics would be very similar for the amount of people that are able to make a okay, survivable living off of the products that they make. Actually, I bet there's more people who are able to make a okay, sustainable living off of writing than off of game making because as a game maker, we get kind of frustrated when we see people um, complaining that they're going to have to pay $2 for a game on their phone which I hear people doing all the time. And then you're like, oh, really? You don't want to pay $2 for that game that took people hundreds of hours. You'd rather spend it on a Twix bar. <laughs> like, <laughs> when you put the economies and scale in that perspective, it's, um, it's very challenging. And the marketplace has become increasingly more challenging for revenue driving because of how that market has shifted. So those games that are making $10 million a day, they're making those with in-app purchase systems, right? So for example... You can try and beat this level five times, and if you don't beat it within five times, then you've got to wait 12 hours for one of your lives to recharge, and then you can try again. Or you can pay 10 gold bars to try again right now, 
And by the way, a thousand gold bars is ten real life dollars. So, so there's like gaming within the game itself, oh, it's right? Heavy They're totally psychology. manipulating basic yeah, human yeah. desires yeah, and, and wants insane. and needs, and keep that dopamine level up there. Yep. And, yep. And that's the only way that the companies that make serious bank are able to make it is through those types of mechanisms. And the only way they can make that money is off a very tiny percentage of people, so they have to have massive users. So, for example. Um, 96% of people who play a free game will never buy anything within the game. So only 4% of people will ever spend money. And of that 4% of people, only 10% of that 4% make up 90% of the profits that company makes. So they're makes. the hardcore addicts right, exactly. of the game. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But it's so hard because companies that have that massive amount of profit and those massive amounts of users, they can just manage to make money off of that tiny amount of people but anyone who's smaller than that, if you put your game out there for free, you're not going to make any money. And if you don't put your game out there for free, no one's going to want to download it. So it's this really tricky model that's working itself out to figure out how games are priced and how people can actually afford to make them. So so back to game theory. Mm -hmm. um, you decided to take these uh, lessons and learnings and and experiences within gaming and apply them to new sectors and new sorts of clients. Can you talk a little bit about maybe what you're doing in, in healthcare or, or some of the other sectors? Yeah, totally. So basically what we do is we sit down with folks and we say, okay, what's, what's your challenge? What's the problem that you're trying to solve? So some examples of some problems that we're solving now for clients are employee motivation to learn things outside of the workplace is a problem we're solving for um, one of our clients. So we're building a game that helps inspire employees to take actions outside of work and build a knowledge base. Another example of a problem is how do you motivate high school kids to be more physically active every day? And we're building out a game that's going to allow full high schools to divide into red and blue teams and engage in an online digital water balloon fight. And the amount of water balloons you're able to get for the fight is directly tied to the amount of steps you take a day and things like that. And then we'll build out games that help kids get excited about science, games that help refugees access relaxation techniques without language barriers. So cool. lots of cool stuff. Cool. Um, where doesn't gaming work? Like, <laughs> okay. Like, you know what I mean? Like, That's I'm trying awesome to figure question. out, like, yeah. where, where wouldn't it be relevant? Okay, so the, it doesn't work everywhere when it's done the wrong way. And so many people are doing it the wrong way right now. And that's a huge challenge. So the word gamification is a dirty word. Okay. Bad like word. if you strike it, Sam, never again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got it. I'm on it. I mean, I don't mind it because it does kind of describe it, but it's become very problematic because it represented this huge movement like five years ago where people said, okay, we got to gamify everything. Everything can be a game, right? And what they did to make it games is the people who were doing this weren't game designers. They weren't game developers. They were marketers and they were CEOs. And so what you end up with, right, is the fact that in Yelp, if you go to a restaurant enough, you can become a duke of the restaurant and you can be at the top of the leaderboard, which feels totally weird and random. You're like, okay, why am I a duke in Yelp? Like, it just doesn't necessarily make sense. So people started slapping things that felt like games on top of pretty much everything. And that's really problematic because it's thinking that sort of a gimmick is going to drive use. And the way that we treat it is that 
games allow us a lens into behavioral psychology that is totally unique. And it allows us to uncover the unique motivations that naturally exist within these things, right? Like learning is really, really fun. And it's fun for a lot of the reasons that games are successful. And so we sort of use games as like our secret dictionary to understand why things like cooperation and status seeking and completion feel satisfying for people as individuals. And then through that, we're able to suggest and build tools that build off the natural motivations that are inherent to things and really make things shine for what they are rather than putting a bunch of stickers on them and saying, look, isn't it cool? Wow. If that makes any oh, it sense. Does. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it totally does. It's, it's definitely not like the dark arts of human manipulation, right? The gimmicky side of things, right? It's no, no. The, the, I mean, the helpful push or the yeah. encouragement or the yeah. nudge toward a, a desired behavior. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that there's... There's problems in total manipulation. <laughs> Oftentimes it wears thin fast, right? Like people can burn out pretty hard on some of these games. There's stories where, so that game I was talking about before, Clash of Clans, that makes $10 million a day, the guy who is the number one player in that game spends $75,000 a year in the game. Oh, good God. <laughs> Wow. So, is he sponsored like a race car driver? No, would be? You know, no. There the, are, I mean, that's the badges. I mean, I know they're sponsored gamers. There my, are sponsored my two gamers. Middle schoolers um, are into that, that stuff. Yeah, e gaming is the future. I'm pumped. But yeah, no, this is very different. Um, did, you ever, did you ever imagine you'd be working with hardcore scientists like up at UVM oh, and, yeah. and other places? I mean, that, that's oh, yeah. pretty awesome that you're actually getting <laughs> national research grants. Yeah, totally. Um, and congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's really cool. I mean, I always, uh, the thing about gaming is it's just a good fit for how my brain likes to work. And I always knew when I was little that I was going to do something entrepreneurial. I always knew that I was going to do something creativity driven. And stuff just sort of comes up and it sounds cool. And I'm like, great, let's do that. And this is really just an excuse for me to do that. My company's just sort of the excuse I get to do cool random stuff all the time over and over and what really makes games so fun for me to make and what makes working with scientists and folks like that so satisfying is it's this total left brain right brain marriage it's this corpus callosum of a career where games are super systems and logic driven and I love that side of it I love that whole sort of logic puzzles and if this happens then what happens next and how do we make sure this all adds up correctly and matches but none of that would be anything anyone would want to interact with at all unless it looked and felt amazing and that's where the creativity comes in so it's this really awesome combo that's just really fun to to play with every day that's great uh we're gonna have to look up Corpus callosum at some point because I, I have no idea what that means. It's the membrane that attaches the right hemisphere of your brain to the left hemisphere of your brain. And Sir Ken Robinson, who gives like that best classic TED talk where he talks about education, right, right. he says that it's uh, larger in women and that's why women are better multitaskers, in his opinion. Uh -huh. <laughs> so who knows if that's true? So I have a question. I, I think it's totally, completely cool what you guys are doing. And I imagine that many uh, companies that have these big problems that could be solved with games 
don't know that, would never think that, how can you find those companies and, and show them what you can do? Yeah, so it's really interesting. People get pumped when we start talking about it. It's a particular type of CEO. So our sort of target market is a innovative, enthusiastic CEO who can't wait to hear about and try new things. That's who we end up working with 90% of the time are just people in leadership or C-level positions in these companies who, when we come in and say, guess what? We make games and we can use them to solve your problems. They go, whoa, what? Tell me how. That's so interesting. So it really is a particular type of person. And um, we've done a, I mean, just through doing a TED Talk and stuff like that, really the whole sales technique that we have for our company is just me going around and talking to people and saying, this is what we do. And people say, well, that's really crazy. How does that work? And then we tell them a little bit more. And then we find a problem that they want to solve. So it's almost like you're demystifying the whole process and then you kind of see how it, you can apply it to their company. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think there's a lot of demystifying. I mean, this whole idea of sort of magic secret sauce stuff is always a little bit not my jam. I mean, I like this idea that anyone can understand anything. You know what I mean? Like, And the whole idea of us sharing our experiences and sharing knowledge and bringing new insights into people's lives and tools they can use, that's just that's just a good time. Yeah. So, Marguerite, I have met all of your employees, yeah. and they are so completely awesome. I love it's my employees. It's crazy. Um, I would just want to know, how, how do you find them? And I think I, I know, but I'd love to hear it. And also, how do you keep them around? Yeah. No, I love my team so much. And it's crazy because our team's really grown this past year, right? Like, oh, yeah. we've hired four people in the past year, um, which is exciting because before that our team was like three people. <laughs> so, And how many, what's the total count then? So total count right now is seven full-time and four part-time. Great. And they're in different offices. Yeah, yeah, remote work and all that sort of stuff. So <clears throat> we're really, really lucky that we have a college partner like Champlain College. We all went to Champlain College. It's an active learning school. So the kids that go there learn how to make games by actually being on teams of peers who have different skill sets. And they're all bringing those skill sets together to make a product, which is exactly what you do every day when you come into a gaming studio and you have to build a product. So we know that they're getting the knowledge they want, but also the college loves that we are building a company that's excited to hire their kids when they graduate. So for example, we sent the game programming class our coding standards, and now they just learn our coding standards, all of them, because... That's fantastic. <laughs> that's right? the you... dream, I think. I know. Uh, and that's not uncommon. You know, We have another yeah. company, Next Capital, in our portfolio that is uh, working with the UVM computer science department. They said, here's our test. Yeah. yeah. Here's our hiring standard. Because it's learning, right? And, and the faculty were, were, were very welcoming. Yeah. They said, great. Yeah. Here's an here's in-market company willing to exactly. hire, and yep. we can do internships and stuff. Yes, because so. it's practical. It's like I sat down with the, the guy who runs some of the game programming classes, and he said, you've been hiring some of our people. What's your feedback? And I said, well, we really have to train them on coding standards because it seems like they sort of get out of the habit of using them and we got to make sure that they are writing clean code and that sort of stuff. And he said, oh, well, send, send us yours and we'll just use those from yeah. now on. So you have absolutely no shortage of 
talented, you know, people that can do the job, but how, you know, how do you, I'm sure it's a big cultural thing and. It's a huge cultural thing. I mean, diversity is super important for us in hiring. Uh, it's kind of hilarious because I was thinking about this the other day and so people who play games are pretty much 50-50 men and women, right? A lot of people think it's mostly male. It's definitely not. It's very close to 50-50. And people are like, oh, it's because of mobile games. And actually more women own gaming consoles and PC gaming stations than men. So it's across the board. But if you look at the average game company, if they're doing a good job, they'll have 10% women working there. Wow. Most companies have a couple hundred employees, 5 to 10 women. So not a lot of women work in games. Uh, and I was thinking about this the other day and I was like, wow, look at our team. Our team is, you know, really gender diverse. We've got, you know, trans and agender people and we've got more women than men on the team. We've been so lucky. And then I caught myself and I was like, wait, no, we haven't. We just knew what we were looking for. Hmm. And if we can do it, then absolutely yay. And any other gaming company completely can. So there's just really awesome people who are really excited to make games with us. And there's a huge culture thing. I mean, there's two kinds of developers. There's developers who think this is the logical best way to do this. And so we're going to do it this way. And there's developers who say, here's how I was thinking of doing it. What do you guys think? Does this seem right? If not, I'll try it another way. And we have a very collaborative, cooperative, failure-friendly work environment, which um, it's not how a lot of people work. Sometimes you'll find people who are really going to dig their heels in and say, this is the way to do it. This is right. None of us on our team do that. And part of that, I think, is because we, we make games. Um, we are making things every day that have to be for someone else, right? We don't really get the, the privilege of saying, this is right, because our right might not be right for the people who are playing it. And so you get to be much more empathetic and flexible. And so we definitely emphasize, emphasize the people we want to hire are the people who are flexible, who are excited to learn, who are excited to try different things, who are excited to really work together to solve problems with people who don't do what they do and to fit in lots of perspectives. That's awesome. And I, th I think you have a pretty unique um sort of like feeder program for your employees. Can you talk a little bit about how they get started at Game Theory and how you kind of evolve them, I yeah, guess? Yeah, totally. So again, we're lucky that Champlain's right here because we're able to do this sort of feeder system. So we bring employees in for a three-month internship, then a six-month internship. We typically do this while they're in school. So we'll do like 10 hours a week part-time while you're in classes. And then at the end of that period we'll be able to sit down and look at your work and talk about it and determine what next steps are. So we really do a lot of training of people before we consider a full-time position. And I think it's important too because it gives everybody some flexibility, right? Totally. Like if someone's working for us for six months and they decide that, you know, working here just isn't a right fit for them, that's great. And they got the opportunity to experience that and to know that, which is really valuable. And we, we learned some lessons from early hires that didn't quite work out the way we wanted them to, how important it is to really train when you're doing these internships, right? So we do weekly code reviews and weekly critiques. But a lot of it really just is feeling that cultural connection for the employees once they've been here working with us for six months, right? You can tell if they're like, 
okay, this is the type of team, this is the type of energy that I really want to be involved in, it can click right, and then you know. That's really smart. I mean, I'm thinking back. You've been here at, at VSET Fairpoint since before we were officially open. Yep. Even at UVM, you were up at our UVM <laughs> yeah. office, which is awesome. Yeah, well, you finished I was one. trying to think of how many interns you've had flow through, mm-hmm. which is stunning. I, I bet it's probably two dozen. Um, it's been quite a few, um, and it's really fun now to to feel like that system. We've learned a lot from it. We've learned a lot on how to have effective internships. We've learned a lot on how to hire the right people for internships. And as our company has grown, we're in a better position to do good internships, right? Because now we're in a position where when we were a smaller team, we had projects that had to get done. And so if you couldn't come in and contribute to a client's project well, then we had a hard time justifying that investment. But a lot of it's really just realizing how low budget and flexible part-time internships can be while kids are at school. I mean, if we're paying someone, we pay our interns 13 bucks an hour, be great to get that up to 15 bucks an hour. And if you're just having 10 hours a week at that, I mean, that's just a couple hundred bucks to have someone on your team who you're training and providing good skill sets to, and just being a bit of a pressure valve for certain tasks, and that helps. Have you started, have you seen any of your former employees or interns go off to open up their own uh, businesses? As Sometimes, you know, when you're in an entrepreneurial setting, yeah. you see it, you're either talked out of it, yep. right? Saying, oh my, I can't handle this yes. uncertainty. We've or, seen that. Yeah, yeah for sure, right? <laughs> we, we all have. And, but I'm just curious as to whether or not, you're now a, a feeder company, yeah. you know, in a way towards spawning these these other studios or starts. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we haven't really seen that yet. I think part of it's because doing this type of work is super team-driven. But what's been really exciting is to see the ecosystem that started to build around game development and people after they graduate making their own way with it in this community. And I think that's taken on some really interesting dimensions. Like we're a company that's able to grow and able to hire, but there's also a group of grads who graduated this spring who have this sort of art collective called Sunday Month that makes creative game products together in this sort of studio style, which I think is an awesome way to do that, right? Because it's not like we're not depending on revenue and profits. It's like we're going to all come together and make collaborative products and push them out there. And so it's really cool to see how by starting a foundation for a community, things can start to orbit and come together. And we hire out of that art collective and we're able to collaborate on events and all of that. So it really helps. Yeah, it's gotten a critical mass. And I think uh, well, your last game uh, hack you had a right or yeah game, game jam, jam yeah, yeah, right yeah. i mean yeah. how many people came to that oh it was pizza? awesome we had like 30 people which was great when we did it a year before this we had 10 so right and uh, you know to echo your point you know there's another game developer company up at our, our uvm office yep. right yep and, totally uh, Jeff Spranger and his company, and and that meetup for game yeah. developers yeah. has gone from a you know a teens you know yep. fourteen fifteen people yep. to I think the list is now over three hundred with crazy. experts coming in yeah. from all over the the country and coast. It's so, very cool. Uh, momentum breeds momentum. Yep. Uh, I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about the broader ecosystem here in in Burlington or in yep. Vermont, you know, and just you know what your perspective is, right? Because you could do your company uh, from anywhere. Yep. Right. Why do you stick here? Yep. All right. Uh, and why do you, what do you see? You know, is, is it, are we trending up, going sideways? Yeah. You know, where could it improve perhaps? Yeah. I'm, I'm here because I think it's a real place. 
mean, it sounds really ridiculous, but like I'm grounded here in a sense of reality and truth that I think you just don't get in other places. Being a human. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it sounds Basic really needs. stupid. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if like this is completely incomprehensible to other people, but like when I go outside and I know how snow smells and I know that I'm going to get some beef and I'm going to go for a walk in the woods with my dogs, like that just feels honest and grounded in a way that I think is really important. Like when I go and visit San Francisco, <laughs> there's people that are doing really cool things and I have a lot of friends that are doing cool things there. But every time I leave and I'm like, God, these people are just like so on another plane of reality. You know what I mean? It's like... It's they're like looking this, for housing. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. They need that housing. It's just a different dimension. And I feel like it's detached from a lot of the stuff that just makes us intrinsically human. And I think that staying connected to that sense of humanity and that sense of fulfillment in your life is much, much more valuable and relevant than a sense of, of profit or ambition, right? I want to be here because I'm excited to feel like my life has been full and has been happy and has been experienced. You know what I mean? I want to be able to pull meaning and feel the world every day. And I feel like I wouldn't be able to do that if I wasn't confronted with the sort of beauty and serenity that we get living in a place like this. So for me, that's that's really important. And I think that everyone who like chooses to live here kind of shares that. And I think that that's something that is going to become more and more important. I think that lifestyle-centered work environments are going to become more important to people because they can be because of remote work and because of those possibilities. So if you can say to someone, you could do the same job that you do today in New York but you could do it remote in Vermont and your kids could grow up running around in the woods and you could go to the farmer's market every weekend and get your fresh bread. Don't forget the craft beer. Yeah, right? the craft beer, all that good stuff. So it's just, it's the life that I want to lead. I'm kind of a hobbit, you know? And so if I get to be a hobbit and run a tech company, that's pretty good. And it's that's really sort of the, the best Vermont of both dream. Worlds, yeah, isn't it? yeah, totally. So. Do, do th it must have been that half hour journey in the dark. Yeah. From Landgrove to the Seven Eleven, exactly. where, where this was just yeah, our trials impressed upon you. Yeah, so yep. that that's pretty pretty cool. Um, I, I was wondering too. Um, you had a chance to take in outside investor money yep. at one point. Yep, and I think we're headed down that path, and then sort of you know maybe had a come to Jesus kind of moment, or just yeah. just decision about you know this wasn't right for me. Yeah, totally. could you just share a little bit about that? Because so often the the teams that we deal with, one, they yep. either can't get money or yep. they get money from the wrong people, the yep. wrong places, the wrong alignment or misalignment rather. Yes, totally. So just share maybe lessons learned or, yeah. or advice if you could, please. Yeah, totally. So yeah, we had a moment where we had, we had term sheets on the table for investment and it was this big question for me, whether we were going to go with that or whether we were going to continue to self-fund and bootstrap the company. And I remember I talked to a lot of different people to get advice. I sort of grappled with the decision for a couple of weeks. And then when it really just came down to it, we just, we just didn't need it. We didn't need the investment. We could continue to scale and grow and do all of that on our own steam with the money that we were making already in the company. And I think it's different for different companies, right? Some companies, a, a financing model where they're getting funding is really just the only viable option. But I can't imagine personally 
ever starting a company with investment like that now because when you do it yourself, it's just, it feels sustainable in a way that I think is, uh, is much more grounded and concrete, right? So you know, I've made something and people want to buy it and I am selling it to them and I am making money and I'm growing that over time. Do you still, do you still chuckle when you make a deposit at the bank? Yeah. It's awesome, isn't it? It's great. It's great. You're like, all right, money. And it just feels really good. It feels like it's just, I mean, I hear people, sometimes Sometimes it worries me, these sort of perspectives that are growing around this sort of high capital, high investment ecosystem. I hear people saying like, the only way a company can really be successful is to scale to a point where you sell to Google. And that just feels so hollow. Like, like what? what? What is that? What does that result in? What does that mean? You know, and so to build a company that I can scale over time and provide jobs to people who I love and who are so great and build a team and have that be something that can sustain and thrive without this pressure of the venture market where you want to scale quick to sell fast. What's the end game there, right? What's the equal sign at the end of that equation that actually caused a result besides a pile of cash? And what is that pile of cash, right? It just becomes some numbers in a bank account. And so for me to do stuff that feels much more grounded and sustainable and stuff where I can actually feel the results every day makes a big difference. Incremental growth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something where you know that the profit you're making is stuff that you're spending to grow and you're not making promises to people that you're going to have the pressure to keep besides from our clients. But it's not, it's not based on uh, it's not based on capital. It's not based on investment. It's not based on money. It just feels like I made something. If it's quality, people are going to buy it. If they like it, they're going to buy more of it and I'm going to have more money to make more of it. And that just feels like a very, um, it's predictable. It's comfy. It's the same reason I didn't really like the unpredictability of the games marketplace. I want to know that I can scale something predictably and well and have some control. And I'm not sure human nature has quite been figured out yet. To, <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know, uh, finding yeah, tools to, uh, to help us be better humans yep. would, be, uh, would be awesome. Yeah, totally. Do, do you have a sort of 10-year uh, vision? I mean, is, is it... Is it I mean, do you know what you want to be in five or ten years? And I'm just curious. Some yeah. people have like a sales goal. Some people have a headcount. Yeah, some totally. people measure it by changing the world some way. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, well, it's so funny because like a year ago that I was thinking a good five-year plan would basically be to get the company a competitive place and then sell it to a large acquirer, right? And then I started hiring people, <laughs> and now I feel completely different. It's like the experience of hiring this staff and these people who I love working with every day and who have all this great stuff to give, right? They could have shares in a company and a sale could benefit them somewhat. But I think that the value is so powerful of us just sitting together and working every day and loving our jobs. That's awesome. I want that. I want that to grow and continue. I want to give as many people as I can, particularly women in technology, their dream job. And I want them to feel fulfilled and satisfied and happy every single day they come to work. I've realized in the past year that that's really what motivates me a whole lot. And then, of course, I want to split out sub-entities that are specifically product-focused so that we can actually make some more capital. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I, I was hoping there was a world domination. There is. That there is. That's in there. there. That's in it's there. It's a sub though. And I think yeah. it's, 
you know, we talk a lot about, as we said, about, you know, not just creating more jobs, but creating better jobs. Exactly. And jobs that make people happy. Totally. Yes. And jobs that, you know, keep people here in Vermont. Yeah. And you're a perfect example of someone that grew up in Vermont and wanted to stay here and yep. was able to stay here. And I think that's pretty rare. Um, and I think part of that is, is um, you know, feeling like that's something that they can do, but yeah. also like having those resources available. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of people in Vermont that are motivated to, to make change there. Um, and one of the questions that I'm always interested in asking people is, do you think we can teach entrepreneurship mm. or do we need to kind of invest more in these people that kind of just have it in them? Like you always say that you just knew you were an entrepreneur. Yeah, always, always. I mean, depends on what you mean and invest. Because the people who have it in them, they're going to make it happen no matter what. Like, it is going to happen. Like, at least that's how it was for me. Like, yeah. I knew that stuff was going to happen and nothing was going to stop me from making it happen. I don't think you can really teach entrepreneurship, but I think you can encourage people to discover it within themselves better than people do now. So, like, for example, I took a class in high school called Tech Research. All you did was show up in the computer lab each day, pick something you wanted to learn about, study it on your own time, explore it in your own time, write a blog about what you learned, and give some speeches throughout the year on what you were experiencing. And that class showed me how capable I was of setting my own goals and accomplishing them, right? It really set a foundation for me realizing that I could run companies and I could be an entrepreneur because I can accomplish all these things on my own terms, right? Goal setting, mapping out things and doing them one step at a time, that sort of self-organization that you need to be able to push stuff forward. So I think that there's a lot of ways that through education, we could give people opportunities to discover if there is that internal capability and desire within them. I think particularly young women, right? I think a lot of women aren't given the chance to feel confident enough to explore without the fear of failure. And if you give young girls through education a chance to have this fearless failure experience, then I think we would see a lot more entrepreneurship, particularly from young women. Because absolutely, it's just kind of terrifying. You know what I mean? And if you give people that chance to jump off the cliff and realize it's not super scary, then I think you spread a lot more seeds of future growth and potential. Absolutely. Um, we wouldn't have really opened this co-working space here at, at Fairpoint um, it was a big risk for VSAT. Yeah. We, it was a big unknown, and there were three or four people in town that I went to to say, move here, help us. Yeah. And you were, you were one of those early adopters, if you Definitely. will, right? Yep. Um, which was so, and we're so appreciative of that, uh, you know, along with Justin Catroni at Google yep. and Arthur Adib when he was at yep. Twitter. Yep. And uh, Rich Nadworthy, too. Yeah, it, yeah. It, and, I guess my question is, why do you stay at VSET today? <laughs> is, is it just, you know? I, I, I think you know, it's me, isn't is it? Is it you, Sam? It's, I don't know. it's 100% Sam. <laughs> it, it's, not the free, it's not the beer fridge or uh, the, the mini donuts some days. So. Yeah, no, but, you know, it really, it really is Sam. I mean, like, in, in the sort of extended metaphor sense, it's, oh, I, it's I, the I'm fact that... I'm signing off now, right? <laughs> like, but, you know, we could have our own company. And we have we had our own office for years, Um there's the practical and there's the emotional reason why VSET is such an awesome fit and why we're so grateful to have it in the community. And the practical reason is the fact that the rent is affordable and flexible. For scaling teams is right. a huge factor, right? Like I added four people to our team this year. If I had done that in another space, I would have had to break a lease, sign a new one. It would have been a whole 
shenanigans process, right? It would have right. been just a lot of time buy and more, energy. Buy more desks and chairs and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's just, it's hard to find smaller spaces that aren't incredibly overpriced, and then you got to fit more people in them, and then you got to get a new space. So it's just, it's a headache that as an entrepreneur who has better things to focus on with my day, I don't need that, right? So VSET removing that point of concern is huge on the practical level. And the um, the affordability is awesome. Um, but the emotional reason, which is really the one that makes the big difference now, because we have a big enough team now that we could get a cool office and we could sort of make it a home. But when I think about doing that, which I do think about sometimes, I just think Traitor. about, I would miss, I would miss everybody. You know what I mean? Like we have our team and it's a certain size, but it's not the size of everybody who works here. And I mean, I feel bad sometimes because our team is kind of loud and like <laughs> I think that we talk about video games too noisily for the coworkers. The best part <laughs> is that when this is happening, I I look over and I look at the screens and they're actually working. You're all working, yeah. which is I think sort of game theory in a nutshell is totally. that you guys are totally horsing around, but at the same time, oh yeah, just getting, everyone, getting, everyone, uh... getting it done. Everyone gets a $50 monthly game stipend for research. Of course they do. <laughs> so of that's course important. they do. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's just, there's activity, there's energy here. I mean, we, we feed off of creative energy and problem-solving energy, and that's just buzzing around the space all the time. And I'm able to connect with people like Justin and Artur and Rich and Sam. I'm able to, like, say hey every day and see what's going on and... That type of connection and that check-in. If I lived in another workspace, lived. If I, <laughs> if I worked at a different workspace, then I would be like, "Oh, okay. Well, I better call these four people and ask them if they want to go get coffee or lunch because I need to stay connected." I mean, right. networking is the reason that my company's been able to succeed as it has. And I basically just walking in in the morning get to check off for, "Hey, how you doing?" boxes. That I would have to schedule for meetings to do totally. otherwise. Totally. So, so that that convenience and laziness goes laziness hand in is hand. pro. Totally. Yeah, it's totally. definitely well, definitely a factor. In Vermont, I feel like you always have to sort of intentionally run into people. So, yeah, VSET's kind of the perfect place to do that. Yes. Yeah, and I and I agree. You know, I think we've chatted about it is trying to to help other communities create these places of density yeah. and yeah. whatever they call it, who cares if it's yeah. a makerspace or an innovation hub. Yeah, or, totally. You know, if they have a stop sign, a second story, and a yep. coffee shop, yep. you could look at this because there's a lot of cool characters in Vermont Yeah, doing amazing things across the world. And, you know, we're all in this this boat together, it totally. seems, trying to run our own sustainability oh, yeah. as a state and as, as households. Yep. Um, so, Marguerite. We are just about out of time, yeah. but we have one last question right. that we ask everyone, all right, all right. and we're getting some pretty great answers. No okay. pressure. No right. pressure here. Magic wand. All right. You can change one thing about Vermont right oh now. Oh, my God. What is it? You know what just instantly popped into my head? What? Red pandas live here. I <laughs> love that answer <laughs> so much. Like, I could, I could actually take some time and think about it and come up with, like, a good entrepreneurial answer. But how sweet would it be if you went for a walk in the woods and there were just, like, red pandas chilling in the trees? Don't overthink it, you know, if that's what your gut says. Our last uh, guest uh, wanted to solve rural poverty. Yeah, so. no, pandas. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, again, that's uh, that's sort of what our listeners are going to get here. Yep, yep. Right? No, but I mean, uh, if I was going to answer. No, no, we're keeping that answer. <laughs> like, like, we're going to print with that one. All right, that's all right, like that's good. so perfect. 
So perfect. And would you and your team think of a way to sort of gamify our country so that more than 47% of people who could vote actually freaking go to the polls and I know. Vote. The voting one is it's up there. So, I want to do that one. We're going to I would crowdfund that, that challenge. You yep. know what I mean? Yep, that, totally. That's something This has been Start Here one. with Sam and Dave, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and even the accidental entrepreneur. Series made possible by the Vermont Technology Council and Fairpoint Communications. Follow us on Twitter at VSET, that's V C E T. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to work.